Andrew Peterson has a song that starts with the words, can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. And I think that speaks to the sort of intuitive sense that people have that the world is not right. That something in the the world in which we live, the systems in which we live, the relationships that we have is broken and it is, it is twisted. Something about the very world itself doesn't quite work together the way that it seems like it should. And of course, apart from the revelation that God's given us in his word, we would have maybe nothing better than sort of guesses to make about why it is that something is wrong. God, in his kindness, has spoken very clearly to us about what is wrong. But I think we all have the sense that the world is broken. And in fact, the brokenness of the world is the context for everything that we've ever known or experienced. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but you have never experienced any aspect of life in a perfect way, in an unbroken way. We've never lived in a perfect world, in in harmony with God, in harmony with other people, in harmony with nature, and I think we kind of intuitively conclude that we never will, right? The world is broken. It's always going to be like this. This is just the way that it is. And there could even be, let me say this, among Christians, there could even be a temptation to sort of toss the whole thing aside. Even once we've come to faith in Christ, we've come to realize that in Jesus Christ, God is making people new. God is forgiving sins and restoring relationship and, and, and even has a future Uh, restoration, a future glory that we'll enjoy uh, someday, there can be a temptation to kind of think, well, since this whole world is broken and since it's going away at some point and God's going to put us in his kingdom and it'll all be better, maybe we can just sort of forget the whole mess, right? Just sort of cast the whole thing aside, clinging to the personal hope of salvation in Christ and leaving the world with its social systems and natural disorder to just sort of rot and fade away on its own. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't actually give us freedom to do that. It's true, gloriously true, that in Jesus Christ, God is redeeming a people for himself and that by faith we are lifted from this domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his beloved son. He tells us that. But if we think to move on from this life into eternity with God, leaving this world and everything in it behind, then we ignore an important element of the gospel. Namely, that in Jesus Christ, God is redeeming not only a people for himself, but also a creation to be the dwelling place for God and man together. That is the theme, I think, of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 particularly the focus of verse 10, which itself is sort of the the hinge point of this whole paragraph. So I think that verses 3 through 14 really uh, hang on the truth of verse 10, which where, where Paul tells us this, the plan of God that he's revealed now and that has been unfolded uh, in Jesus Christ. So let me read for us uh, verses 3 through 14. But we're going to focus in our time together on the truth that is uh, pinpointed for us in verse 10. God reveals an important but often overlooked aspect 
of his master plan of redemption. Let me read for us beginning in verse 3 down through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Well, you see verse 9 and 10, it reveals to us this plan that God has had from before the foundation of the world, and he's now revealed it, and it's currently unfolding, and it's a plan not only to redeem a people, But if you'll look in verse 10, it is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. That is, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The scope of the gospel, the scope of God's redemption is bigger than we often give it credit for. Now let me uh, give you a brief history of the world. All right, a brief history of the world in three simple phrases. Here it is. The world was good. The world is fallen. The world will be redeemed. That is a history of the world, the story of the universe from beginning to eternity. The world was good. The world is fallen. The world will be redeemed. Let's just look at each of those sort of phases of the life of the world, the life of God's creation uh, one at a time. The world was good. We know, of course, that the Bible starts with nothing existing except the eternal three-in-one God. And God spoke into the nothingness and created all that is. And what he created was good. It says that repeatedly through Genesis chapter 1, after each of the successive days of creative activity, it's summarized and, the, and God saw that it was good. On the final day of creation, the sixth day, when God created man, God created Adam and Eve, then he looked upon the creation, including the human beings that he had made, and he said it was very good. The world in Eden, where God had placed the first people, 
was a world of beauty and harmony and peace and joy that we can scarcely even imagine because we've never experienced anything like it. The world that we have known is broken and has been broken from before we were born. But the world was not always this way. The world was good. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones expresses the, the goodness of the creation of God in her uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. Families, you, got, you have this book, you should. It's fantastic. Even if you don't have kids, you should have this book. I love it. Such a good, uh, it does such a great job of telling the big story of the Bible centered on the redemption in Jesus Christ. Listen, listen to how Sally Lloyd-Jones expresses some of the, the beauty and the goodness of the creation when God made it beginning on where he's creating animals. It says, Hello, birds, God said. And with a fluttering and flapping and chirping and singing, birds filled the skies. Hello, fish, God said. And with a darting and dashing and wriggling and splashing, fish filled the seas. You are good, God said. And they were. Then God said, Hello, animals. And everyone came out to play. The earth was filled with noisy noises growling and gobbling and snapping and snorting and happy skerfuffling. That's a good word. You are good, God said, and they were. God saw all that he had made and he loved them. And they were lovely because he loved them. But God saved the best for last. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children and the world would be their perfect home. So then as she begins to speak of how God uh, breathed life into Adam and Eve, she says, when they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness. Nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said. And it was. The world was good. There was a time when everything that is worked exactly like God intended it to work and relationships were pure and man and beast were in harmony with each other and the world functioned perfectly. But as we know, that didn't last terribly long because by Genesis chapter 3, the wheels are coming off. Adam and Eve, of course, disobey the one prohibition God had given, do not eat of this fruit of this particular tree, and they listened to the lie of uh, the serpent and disobeyed God. And in response, God plunged not only the people, not only Adam and Eve, and not only the serpent into a curse, but the whole creation. In Genesis chapter 3, in response to the sin of man, God says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you'll bring forth children. To Adam, uh, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat. Listen to this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God cursed the ground. The very earth on which mankind lived was placed under a curse. And you get this picture of, of the, the, the ground fighting back now. Before the fall, it must have been that when Adam went to till the garden or to work the, the fields, that it just cooperated and it just was fruitful and productive. And now God says it's going to grow thorns and thistles and weeds. It's gonna, there's going to be famine. There's going to be drought. The earth is going to work against you. And you're going to have to work really hard to get what you need from the face of the earth. And even worse than that, there's a new relationship between people and the earth. Namely, you're going to go back to it one day. To dust you will return. That wasn't, the, that wasn't how God set it up to work. That was the result of sin. That was God's curse upon sin. So God has cursed the ground and, and the very earth. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul gives us a, a good uh, sort of description of uh, the, the, what the world is experiencing. The creation itself is experiencing. He tells us uh, in verse 19, excuse me, verse 20 of, of Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility. That's like frustration, like it, things aren't working. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, that is not of its own accord, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory of the freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so, uh, before we get to the redemption part of things, we need to recognize that the world itself, the creation itself, the, the order of even humankind outside of God's rule is a mess. The world has been subjected by God to futility, to this curse of frustration where things don't work together. It, it, Paul tells us that it's decaying, that it's groaning, that it's longing to be set free. This is, of course, the, the earth doesn't have feelings, so he's sort of personifying here the experience of the creation, but recognizing that the whole created order is broken and in need of repair. John Calvin says that the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and on the earth and on all creatures. And if you look around, you can see it. It makes sense to us. In the natural world, there's wildfires. Look at what's going on in California right now. There's Hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. This is the, the, it's like the earth itself is fighting against us. The earth itself is not in unison and working together. It's, it's broken. It's, it's creating harm and destruction. In the animal kingdom, there's, there's death and chaos and, and brokenness and disharmony. One animal 
killing another and and eating it and all manner of 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 chaos even within the, the animal kingdom if you look around human societies from the dawn of time up through our own day injustices and violence have been in all times and in all places there has not been a perfect utopian human society it's always broken the world itself is broken the systems of the world are broken and all of this points to the same reality the world is fallen the world along with Adam and Eve and all of mankind in their sin fell with it Satan has claimed this realm as his domain and is actively at work for its destruction the world was good the world is fallen and then the final trajectory of the world is that the world will be redeemed this is part of the great gospel story of redemption the world will be redeemed the Bible ends with a renewed restored earth it was promised all the way back in Isaiah chapter 65 and if you read Revelation chapters 21 and 22 you'll get a glorious picture of the new earth the new heavens and earth that God is rebuilding for himself to dwell with his people second Peter chapter 3 verse 13 Peter points to this very same reality but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells now there's discussion and debate among theologians and scholars about whether God is going to destroy the current world and start over and make a new one or he's going to somehow transform or redeem the current one uh, and you could look at Bible passages that seem to indicate one or the other of those um, it seems to me the most congruent with the story of redemption and promises like the one in uh, in Romans 8 and like the one in Ephesians 1 that God is going to not just scrap it and start over but that he's going to rebuild it he's going to reshape it and restore it and renew it so that the earth that we live in is a perfected earth is a, a renewed uh, earth and system that we'll live in one more time in, in Romans chapter 8 I know so far I'm spending more time in Romans than I am in Ephesians but we'll, we'll get back there uh, Romans chapter 8 again he tells us uh, again that the creation is included in the redemption that God is accomplishing and, and unfolding for his people, right? The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Wait, why does the creation care? If it's God's children who are going to experience this renewal and this recreation and this transformation and this glory, why does the creation care? It says the creation waits with eager longing for the creation itself was subjected to futility. Because of him who subjected it. Wait, why did he subject? Why did God subject the world to, uh, to futility? In hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And that's why in verse twenty-two, Paul speaks of the pains of the earth as being childbearing pains. He says, "We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now." What do the pains of childbirth bring? New life. The pain of the world, the pain of the broken systems in which we live is a pain that results in new 
life. God has included the creation in His redeeming work. Tim Keller says, A glory is coming that will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls on us, it will envelop the whole created order and glorify it along with us. We will bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, redeemed reality. That is the, the, the grand global scope of God's redeeming work in Jesus Christ. The world will be redeemed. So we must regard the creation itself as a part of God's redemptive plan and itself a recipient of His redeeming grace in Christ. Though clearly not in the same ways. The, the creation is not able in faith to respond to a message of salvation, right? The, the message of the gospel. But along with God's redeeming work in Christ, the creation comes along with us. So back to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's see what this tells us about God's plan for the universe. Ephesians 1.10 A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. To unite all things in Him. We talked last week particularly about how Christians have been united to Jesus Christ. By faith, by grace, uh, through faith, by grace, we've been uh, put into union with Christ. That is, what we, He is in us and we are in Him. What's true of Him becomes true of us. What's His becomes ours because of this union with Christ. And here uh, the, the ESV says that God is planning to unite in Christ all things. Now it's an interesting phrase. In fact, the Greek word that's translated there as unite, uh, is, it only occurs one other place in all the New Testament, and it's in Romans chapter 13, verse 9, where Paul is speaking of the commandments, um, don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't steal and all these things, and, and he says in Romans 13, 9, that these commandments are summed up, and that's the same word, summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the same word that's used in Ephesians 1.10, speaking of God uniting all things in Christ, is used to say that God is sort of summarizing all of the commandments in the one commandment, love your neighbor. In other words, all the other commandments are aiming at love of neighbor. Love of neighbor is what summarizes the point and the purpose and the goal of all the other commandments. If you say love your neighbor, well, what does that mean? Well, it means don't kill and don't steal and don't commit adultery and don't bear false witness, right? So these things summarize love your neighbor. And so if we, if we see that the same way in Ephesians chapter 1 and even kind of change the language a little bit to say that, that it was a plan for the fullness of time to sum up all things in him, which some translations do to sum up all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, we start to get the idea. What, it, what it's saying is that the aim, the goal, the purpose of all things in heaven and on earth is Christ. It's his glory, his praise, his honor, everything summed up in Christ. There is a final reality where Christ will be in the center and will be glorified and all of creation and all of redeemed humanity will share in that one purpose, to glorify and honor Jesus Christ. Once again, to quote John Calvin, he says, out of Christ, so as 
opposed to in Christ. Out of Christ, all things were disordered, and through him they have been restored to order. And truly, out of Christ, what can we perceive in the world but mere ruins? We are alienated from God by sin, and how can we but present a broken and shattered aspect? The proper condition of creatures is to keep close to God. Such a gathering together as might bring us back to regular order, the apostle tells us, has been made in Christ. Formed into one body, we are united to God and closely connected with each other. Without Christ, on the other hand, the whole world is a shapeless chaos and frightful confusion. We are brought into actual unity by Christ alone. Doesn't that sound like the world you know? A shapeless chaos and a frightful confusion? How the world needs Jesus Christ. The only lasting and ultimate hope for peace and restoration is the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ that God is unfolding and he will one day finally fully establish. God's plan to sum up all things in Christ might be compared to uh, an architect's plans for a building, right? That the plans have been laid and a crew has been hired and work has begun, but the building is not yet there, right? The plan is completed and it reveals a picture of what the finished product will look like. The architect has taken decisive steps, right, to begin the building process, but the building is not yet completed. Anyone who's familiar with the architect's plans for the building can see, even if imperfectly, how uh, the various steps being taken are progressing toward the building's completion and can therefore appreciate the individual pieces and movements as they come about in anticipation of the day when the process is finished and the building is completed. It's the same way with God's plan to unite, to sum up all things in Christ. The decisive work has been achieved. Steps are being taken to bring it about. God is at work in the world, within and around us, to bring his plans about, but we yet await its final consummation. So this is where we are. We're in the middle of the building plan. The, pl the plan has been finished Steps have been taken, but it's not yet complete. And that's where we are in the sort of history of that process. So God's plan is to sum up all things in Christ. Well, what does that mean? What is the next question we got to ask is what is all things? And I know that grammar sounds funny. What is all things? But we got to know what that phrase means. What, what does Paul have in mind when he says that that God is summing up all things in Christ. But we get a clue in the phrase he uses right after that, where he says that the plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So all things encompasses two spheres, if you will, two realms. There's the realm of the heavens, the heavenlies, and the realm of the earth the heavenlies and the, the earth. So there's these two spheres, these two realms. There's, there's one commentator that suggests that Paul throughout the letter focuses on one particular representative of each of these realms. 
namely, in the heavenlies, he, he refers repeatedly to the rulers and powers and authorities and principalities. You'll find words like that kind of littered throughout the book of Ephesians. Uh, and, and on the, the earthly realm, he speaks of the church. He speaks uh, of the relationship, the uniting of Jew and Gentile under Christ into one new humanity. And so you have heavenlies and earth spoken of repeatedly through the representatives of the rulers and powers and the church uh, on the earth. There's verses throughout. Uh, He spoke of the heavenlies back in verse 3 already, where it said that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. So he's already got this realm of the heavenlies in view. It's the place where Christ is. And then he begins to speak of, uh, of the, the work that he's doing uh, among us, among our, the people here, the sealing that happens. That's the church, and that's on earth, right? So within this framework, if, if you consider all things means the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, it, it, within that framework, God's plan to sum up all things in Christ meets with two main obstacles. The rebellion of powers and authorities in the heavenly places and the alienation of people from one another, particularly in this context historically, Jew and Gentile, the separation that existed between Jewish and Gentiles and the sort of redemptive historical thing that was happening as God began to fold in the non-Jewish people into the family of God, the people of God. And so you've got rebellion in the heavenlies and you've got alienation uh, on the earth. And so for the plan to be accomplished, He has to conquer both of these things. Christ has to accomplish victory in both realms, namely overcoming the rebellion of the heavenly powers and overcoming the separation of God's people in the church. We read earlier from Colossians chapter 2 where it said that Christ triumphed over the powers by the cross. Right In his death on the cross, he put them to open shame, triumphing over them. That's exactly what it means to overcome the rebellion of these heavenly powers. You've got angels and demons, right? The kind of fallen creatures who work for Satan and fight against God. And, and Jesus subjects them, subdues them by triumphing over them in the cross. And then in terms of, of overcoming the separation of God's people, Ephesians goes on to talk to us. If you were to look at chapter 2, you'd find him speaking of how Jesus in his death removed the barrier of hostility. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So Jesus in his cross overcomes the separation, the wall of hostility that divided Jew and Gentile and brings them together into one new man. And so it's, it's, it's big. It's staggering. When you start to see what Paul is talking about here, the gospel is much bigger than me and Jesus. It's God is redeeming one new humanity for himself, but it's even bigger than that. He is subduing heavenly powers. He is uniting people together in his name. And he is redeeming for himself an entire creation that will be set free from its bondage to decay 
and will find the fullness of Christ. So all things, things in heaven, things on earth, being summed up in Him. Well, when's that going to happen? Well, it tells us uh, in the fullness of time, which has the idea of like when the time was ripe, like when it was everything was ready and exactly in its place. Now, the, the tense of that verb, you can't really tell it from the way that the ESV renders it, but it's actually a future tense. So it literally would be when the times will have reached their fulfillment. This is a forward-looking, future-looking statement of a consummation that is yet to come. Decisive steps have been taken in the work of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, especially in his death and his resurrection. But the fullness of the plan, the summing up of all things in Christ, is still being brought about. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, we're told we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There's still rebellion. There's still spiritual powers fighting against him. There's still alienation among people, even within uh, the church at times. So, it's still in process. There's a parallel passage in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I don't have time to read it for you now, but uh, verse 19 and 20 says that God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, God's purpose in redemption is bigger than an individual is bigger than a people. It is an entire created order united in Christ, redeemed humanity, redeemed creation. Now, this doesn't imply, of course, that every person will therefore be saved. We can't, uh, we can't come from, infer from this a, uh, a kind of a universalism. Oh, well, that means that all people in all places and all times will be saved. That's not at all what this implies. And in fact, that would be directly contradictory to many of Paul's own statements in, in the same passages. We recognize that it is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that this work is accomplished. And so the, the all things in heaven and on, on earth is a redeemed humanity, redeemed by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all human beings who have ever lived will not get to participate in that redeemed humanity and that restored creation. Only those who yield themselves to the authority of Jesus the King and who name Him as Savior and Lord and respond in faith to the gospel call. But God's purpose is bigger than we often acknowledge. He is intending to create, recreate, or restore to himself a creation. The spiritual blessings, back in verse 3, that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The spiritual blessings God has lavished by grace upon his people through their union with Christ have as their final aim not only the reconciliation of a people for God, but also the redemption and restoration of the entire created order, brought back into submission to God's will, back into harmony with the new humanity he's created for himself in Jesus Christ. This is God's cosmic plan of redemption. And you can miss it if you just breeze through verses like this, but it's clear if you spend time here, God is doing something really big bigger than me, bigger than us, bigger even than just the church. He's restoring the cosmos to himself. Let me, let me conclude with a few sort of 
implications of this? Some, some how, what does this mean? What, what, why? So what? What do we do now? What do we do with this truth? Uh, two broad things. Number one, it means our future hope is bigger than you've imagined. Our future hope is bigger than you have imagined. This reality infuses our present reality, including its hardships and frustrations, with deep purpose and meaning. With our eyes on a coming world in which all things are restored and redeemed in Christ, our momentary struggles and sufferings are put in perspective. And in fact, that's what Paul says in that passage in Romans 8, where he's speaking about the creation being subjected to futility. He begins that passage by saying in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The suffering we endure now, we will find one day it was worth it. It's not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. So, so, so take heart. Look up. Allow yourself to dream and, and, and wonder and, and imagine this, this new world, this, this completely restored and perfected, recreated order that's summed up in the glory of Jesus Christ. And let yourself think about it. You know, th- this, is, this is the sort of category uh, of, of questions, kind of theological questions that I get from my kids more than anything else. More than any other thing that they ask, they're, they're thinking about what's it going to be like when everything is restored, right? Are we going to be able to have houses and drive cars in heaven? Are we going to be, uh, is no one going to get sick in heaven? Like, definitely not. The Bible tells us that very clearly. We don't have quite as clear a picture about cars and houses, and I don't know exactly. But those are the things they're wondering and they're imagining as I'm putting them to bed. All right, good night. Hey, Dad. And here it comes. Like, out of left field, which the curveball about what are things going to be like in heaven, right? That's, that's what it sort of often comes down to. And there was a time, there was a time when I thought, ah, they only ask that because it's, you know, they're immature and, and they're, it's just childishness. But the more, the more I live and the more I see and the more I think, I, no, I think that's the right way to be. I think they're, they're asking those things because there's something in their hearts that allows them to like drift and wander and, and imagine and wonder, wow, what will it be like to be in God's presence and to, to meet all the great you know, saints and heroes in the Bible and, and people in, in church history, you know, like having coffee with or having a beer with Martin Luther, like what's that going to be like, you know? Um, I don't think my kids are wondering about drinking beer with Martin Luther, just to be clear. Um, but anyway, th- there's a freedom to sort of wonder and, and, and daydream about it that I think we should feel. We should allow ourselves to sort of tap into that childlikeness. Doesn't Jesus sort of uh, exhort us to do that anyway? Unless you become like one of these little children, All right? So allow yourself to daydream and to wonder about this. The, the, the glory of a restored creation and a renewed and redeemed humanity that is all aiming at the same goal of glorifying Jesus Christ is a mind-boggling reality that we will one day experience. Hang on, it's coming. Allow yourself to, to think about it. Your future hope is bigger than you've imagined. The second, the second big thing I'd say in response to this is, is, is this. God has work for us to do here. God has work for us to do here. 
If God is restoring all things, if the very creation itself is awaiting redemption and freedom, we cannot be those who isolate from the world and sit on a hilltop singing, when the roll is called up yonder. I don't think anybody of you would be singing that song. Probably, you probably don't even know that song. But uh, we can't be those who are like, just stay away from the world. It's messed up. It's broken. Let's just cluster off over here and do our own thing and write our own music and write our own books. And, you know, we'll just, we'll just create our own little Christian culture to kind of stay away from everybody until finally Jesus comes back and, you know, we, we endured it all. God has work for us to do. We must be those who labor for the sake of the world with an eye on its future restoration. Three ways we can do that. Number one, be stewards of God's creation. We should be stewards of God's creation. Plain and simple, we should care about the environment. Sometimes that's been politicized to the point that if you talk about conserving resources or something, you're like, oh, you're some liberal or something. Like, how about I care about the world that God created and is going to redeem? We should care. We should be stewards of God's creation. Don't be, uh, don't be uh, wasteful, right? Uh, take Take interest in the world and its natural resources and beauty. Michael Cassidy says that because we love something else more than this world, we can love this world better than those who know no other. Our love for God should free us to love the world well and to care for the creation. Be stewards of God's creation. Number two, be agents of godly justice. Be agents of godly justice. Care about suffering in the world. Speak up for the voiceless. Link arms with just and righteous causes around you. This is how God's people, ambassadors of his kingdom, ought to be in this world, broken as it is. Instead of going, man, I'm gonna, that's a mess, I'm going to leave that over there. We should be those who engage it. We should be those who go run into the fire, if you will, with the, the redeeming hope of godly justice and the ultimate hope of the gospel, which leads me to number three, be messengers of gospel hope. Be messengers of gospel hope. Talk about Jesus. Invite people to church. Read the Bible with a non-believing friend. Invite them into God's kingdom. We should be those who take an interest in those around us, those who are connected to us that don't yet know Christ that aren't yet living in, in, in submission to him, in relationship to him. And take the opportunities, find the opportunities, create the opportunities to speak of Jesus and to point other people to the hope of the gospel. The world will be redeemed. And so let's not forget about it. Let's not leave it behind and just form little holy huddles. Let's be those who gather in the name of Christ remind each other of the glorious gospel story and the truth of a new and restored created order that's coming and then scatter to do the work that God has called us to do here in this world for his glory until all things are one day summed up in Christ. Let me pray.